For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. You're like willing to make yourself a little more vulnerable than, uh, you know, than me be like, I think I need a joke to, it was Clyde, or if it was Eric, but I was like, there would have never been a picture of me flipping a skid loader over. Like, not ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, because yeah. I just couldn't, you know, yeah, I would have never lived it down, but you don't seem to care. You're like, it is what it is. Skid loader ended up upside down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, doesn't change the fact that I put it upside down. Right. And I, I We've, we've talked about that a lot. It was so well-received because the industry just does not talk about that kind yeah. of stuff. And, but it's a reality of the world we live in. And it was so relatable to everybody because it's like, shoot, yeah, I've been there too. It sucks, yeah. but this is what I learned. And it was just hundreds of people saying, yep, been there too, learned my lesson, and now I'm way better off as a result. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's just like, I don't know, I'm so conflicted with the whole safety thing because there's such an enormous push for no mistakes at all. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really don't know if that's the right approach. And it's like, I get it. You can't afford to make mistakes because ex- mistakes can be really costly. Right. But then there's also mistakes that you can make that weren't costly, that are potentially valuable. But if you're trying to completely eliminate every single mistake, like, I, I don't know. It, it's the dichotomy. It goes both ways. Uh, we try not to be, I don't reward anything based on safety. So yeah. it just, I want us to be safe because I want everybody to go home. Uh, I'd rather the equipment not get damaged because damaged equipment's expensive and it shuts down mm-hmm. a piece of equipment for at least a short period of time. Um, yeah. So it's just uh, safety is, we recently brought on uh, Blair joined, our, we hired a girl Blair. Um, she's like our safety coordinator now because we just realized that we can't do it. Like we just, it's outside of our uh, realm of what we can do. It's you, if you break down what Ford really wants me to do, it's to convince people to give me their money to do work that we might or might not be qualified for. So it's to, sure. to give you a, present you something that we end up, um, you know, we end up benefiting from. And we're trying to provide you a good service. We're going to try and do a good job. We're a good company. But at its most base level, it's to convince you to trust me. So I always say, really, yeah. we can use all kinds of nice words, but the truth is that you're manipulating the situation so that yeah. you feel comfortable with me enough to, to agree to pay me, to trust me, to whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, and I always say, like, I have to watch it because I don't use that in certain scenarios. Like people will say, uh, my wife is a great example. She says like, I won't make a decision in a lot of things. But the truth is I always say to her, I'm not making a decision because I, I already know what I want to do. And I can mm-hmm. just present you the case that you would do what I want to do, but I'm trying to give you the freedom to make the decision. And then you yeah. decide, and if you disagree, then we can have a discussion at which point I may try to you know, convince you why we should do what I think. But if yeah. we start out that way, you're probably just going to do what I think. And you won't even realize that it wasn't your thought if I do it well. So that's something I have to manage with my own personality. Well, that's the, and that's the tricky thing about scaling a company, growing a company, especially into different services. I mean, as you guys have expanded into like landfills are a good example, you're just doing bigger and bigger and bigger jobs that you've never done before. And everybody likes to see, well, what's the resume on all the stuff you've done before? But it's like, well, we've never done it. We know we can do it. I mean, we at least think we can do it. 
and we're going to do our best and we're going to make it right because we're a good contractor, but we've never done it before. Right. So I can't tell you I have this long resume. Yeah. And that's just the, the, the funny thing about every big contractor has been in that position. Any company that's ever started has been in that position of it's that fine line of not lying to people, but also making it seem like you're a lot more qualified than you really are. At yeah. least I've been there many yeah. times over. Yeah, for sure. You know, and it always comes back to me. We had, uh, Ford and I were driving up. I want to say he would have had his first Yukon. And we're talking eight years ago. And we were driving up from Sacramento. We're working down there now. That's the place we can't take pictures. And, um, and we had convinced him to give us this work. You know, we got through, we had won the job, but we're not qualified to do the job in terms of statistically. We didn't have the, the data to say we could do it. And we were struggling to get somebody to give us a bond because we had built a cash business. Like we didn't get paid all in cash, but we didn't need any banks. I mean, we bought it yeah. cash. Like we just yeah. we bought what we wanted. And, uh, and we were talking about it. He, we were both on the phone trying to call different people to facilitate different things. And, and I, I forget if he said it to me or I said it to him, but the line was, we may have to beg, borrow and steal to get this job. And I said, well, if we're begging and borrowing, that's you. But if it's going to be stealing, then it's going to have to be me because we sort of built the company that way that he could always look clean. And then I would be the one that would, if we had to argue, I was going to argue. Sure. Uh, and I always remember that, that that was like, that was a big thing for us. And we laugh about it now. I mean, at that point, we were struggling to convince a bonding company to issue us a $1.4 million bond, I think. Now we're bondable to, I think, $70 million on a single project. Now, again, like that's a great example, right? What bonding company would give me $70 million? I've never done a job bigger than $13 million. It doesn't even make any sense. Yeah. I've never yeah. been 70. I'm only, we're only $25 million company. Why would you let me do a $70 million job? But we built this picture, you know, with financials and job and people, and, you know, that says that we could do 70 million. It's such a funny thing. Like it's, so now everybody trusts it. They're like, oh yeah, they could definitely do that. It's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty substantial bonding. Yeah capacity there. Um, so we we were just talking about it. You and Ford have a really interesting dynamic. Ford, Ford just wants to like live under a rock and I want like wants no attention, wants no credit. He just wants to do what he does, operate the company, provide for his family, provide for everybody at Berg, but that's it. Uh, Like he is so against any kind of credit whatsoever and is, you know, kind of softer spoken, reserved, so on and so forth. You're definitely, I mean, you don't want all the credit and this and that, but you're willing to just tell people how it is and you're willing to go after those jobs that Ford might not or, or have those conversations that Ford might not. How does that play out in a, like just a daily fashion? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, that's, that's pretty accurate. I mean, it's a pretty accurate description of how the two of us operate. Um, Ford wants to go do fun things. That's what he, that's what he wants to do. Like, you know what I mean? That's why he yeah. left school because he thought it was fun to go dig test pits. You know what I mean? He bought a backhoe so he could dig more test pits. Like, you know, you know the stories. We've gotten him to tell that story. Um, yeah. But he, he wants to – Ford is just as competitive as me. Uh, he's mm-hmm. just as competitive as I am. And you see that play out when we do different things, when we're actually competing um, outside of work. But he doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want people to realize that he won if he won. And like, that's the difference is like, I really do. I don't want credit, but I want you to know that I beat you. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I always the, remember the Titans is thing. Like I want them to remember what happened. Uh-huh, you yeah. know what I mean? Whereas uh-huh. Ford just wants to move on and do the next fun thing. I'd like to make sure that I leave a mark that if you say like, okay, I remember what happened, you know, they've got me. Uh, And so how that plays out day to day is it lets Ford go do these fun things without having to necessarily follow through, you know what I mean? Which is great for his personality. Uh, And that's sort of, if we had like the three legs of the chair of how we operate this thing is Ford comes up, one of us comes up with an idea, we should do something. I mean, like right now, mm-hmm. the idea is expansion. The idea is geographical expansion. Um, so that's our idea. So we're looking at that. And Ford and I are looking at different places. We have different meetings set up. We're looking at what we want to do. 
Ford will likely have more of an impact on the front side of doing that. Um, even if it's one of the ones that I identified and say, we're going to, I'd like to go after this one. And he says, this one's a good idea. Um, Ford will have more impact on the front side. But then as soon as we decide like, this is what we want to do, that's when Brian comes in because now we need yeah. Brian to say like, okay, this is or isn't reasonable, which um, we talk about it sometimes it's hard for Brian because he may say it's not reasonable and we don't necessarily care. We're like, okay, yeah. that's not reasonable, <laughs> but it is plausible. We tend to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, but you know, the, the best example is Brian would love for us to grow into less capital intensive industry. Like, but Ford and I don't really see the, we like doing this. Like, in other words, we like this. Yes, this is, I told him yesterday, one of the things I told him yesterday is the only reason we're here right now is because you're so stupid that you didn't realize that electrical and plumbing are a way better way to make money. Yeah. I said, I realized yeah. it, but I got into arguments <laughs> with everybody and had to go a different direction. Uh-huh. I was like, but that's why we're here. So, you know, bribes, so we're not going to change. Like, yeah, we might buy an electrical construction company, but that's not, that's not what we want to do. Like, it's, we'd have to change everything. So whereas we we can identify civil companies, we can keep doing that. So all that to say, that's Brian's role is to both tell us that it might be stupid, but also be able to back off and say, okay, well, they're still going to do it. So what do I need to do to physically support it and make it happen? Uh, you know, on the, on the financial HR uh, compliance side. And then once that happens, I become the operational driver to push to get everything done. But mm-hmm. Ford gets to stay out front and go do the thing. Ford might be the one, might be the face until it's time for someone to have to stand there and take credit. And then Ford yeah. will move out of the way. You know, And we've yeah. ended up in numerous meetings where people think I own this company with Ford and me sitting there. Because Ford just won't act like he owns it. He doesn't, you know, he just he just works here. He says it all the time. What do you do at Berg? Yeah. I just work there. <laughs> I, I believe it. My name is Ford Berg and I just work well, at he, Berg. he never says Berg. If you yeah. meet Ford in like in a meeting setting, he says, Hi, I'm Ford. Uh-huh. And then, you know, the, and then someone says, Oh, what do you do there? I just, you know, I work here. And then he'll like sort of pass off, like, okay, Dan, take over, do whatever it is that we're supposed to, whatever this meeting is supposed to facilitate. Yeah. And it usually is a little while later that somebody says something. They're like, well, they're like, well, you know, something will come up and I'll say, you know, about, okay, well, I, I don't know how we get there usually, but usually it's some semblance of either me saying Ford Berg or me saying something about the owner. And then they'll be like, well, you're not the owner. And I'll be like, no. And they're like, well, we'd love to meet the owner. And I was like, you did meet the owner. He was, he was sitting in front of you for <laughs> he was He was right next to you. And you didn't realize there, there are, that is a trend in the construction industry with a lot of, a lot of, established companies I've, I've come across is the owners are oftentimes very understated and you you will not pick them out in a lineup. Yeah. But something I've also recognized too is it's they, they're smart enough to know anybody that's built a successful company like like Berg, they know that they need other people to make up for what they're just not good at. Yeah. And Ford's smart enough to say, well, this is what I'm good at. I need other people like Dan, Brian, Tracy, others at the company to then shore up every other part of the company. And you guys, I mean, you, Brian, and Ford have a pretty damn good dynamic there. Yeah. It's You guys all bring something very different to the table. And it all comes together in a really nice manner to make the company, I think, operate very well. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate like, I like that. I like the dynamic. Yeah, yeah, we feel that way as well. I mean, we were, uh, you know, part of the conversation. There's not many people that have built a successful $30 million construction heavy civil company from the ground up in whatever 10 years realistically um that could withstand the downturn of 08 and covid in a state that outright shut down like there just aren't yeah. a lot mm-hmm. of those um we feel like there are because we get into groups like our peer groups and with you guys and uh and then we're surrounded by them you know like you're sitting in a room and there's 15 guys there all of who have built successful companies of varying degrees pretty quickly. Um, and so you're like, okay, this is, it becomes sort of normal. Um, but I said, there's even less people who have then transitioned that into a multi-state version of itself, mm-hmm. whether it be in the H and K model or the Allen Myers model, which in the Northeast, yeah. that's the two models in my market that I look at. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. There's very few people that have done that in one lifetime. Um, mm-hmm. And I said, so if, if that's genuinely where we're trying to go, then that's great. And I'm interested. We all know that I'm, you know, my, 
risk tolerance has me says this is a no-brainer to do this, but we all need to get on the same page and understand exactly what Brian's responsibility is and where's where are the fences around Brian. You know, like if you make the Venn diagram, like where are we crossing paths where I have to respect Brian's opinion? And where do I have to say, like, okay, Brian, I appreciate your opinion, but this is what I think, and it's my call. And where do we sure. need to be in the middle and say, okay, Ford, Brian, Dan, what do you think we want to do? And that's when usually Ford then steps in and says, okay, here's what I want to do. Because it's not really right or wrong. It's just a, yeah. it's just a call. Yeah, well, that's where that common sense of respect comes into play, too. And, and I mean, at least, like, me and then my, my Dan, not you, but we know when to defer to one another as well. And like, we know where each one's strong and where each one's not. So, um, when it comes to like branding, expanding the brand, so on and so forth, Dan's very quick to defer to me, but it's like, now we're growing into this, there's this software play coming about. I'm very, very quick to defer to him, Randy, Alan, other people within our company that have software experience. Cause yeah. it's like, guys, I've never done this before. This is not my expertise. I'm going to keep staying my lane. I'm here to support you guys, but I'm not going to argue because you guys know better than I do. And sometimes there's there's disagreement. It's like, they're over here, I'm over here. We need someone to come in and, hey, all right, this is where we're going to go, which is really helpful. But most of the time, we have that, that, that enough respect for one another where it's like, hey, if you're really in on this and... I, I, I view it differently, but you really want to f- go in this direction. I think you feel stronger about this than I do. Cool. Let's go try it. I will give it, you know, everything I have. We'll see how it goes. Hopefully I'm wrong. Honestly, like hopefully you're right here and let's just give it a shot. Um, I think there's a lot of value there in knowing when to, even if you feel strongly about something to just step aside and support someone else in what they're saying. Cause it's like, like you both, you and Brian and Ford, you guys all have Berg's best interest at heart. That's that's obvious. Yeah. And so if Brian's really strongly feeling one side of things, it's like, all right, maybe I do need to listen to this guy. And because he's he's he wants what I want here. He wants the, the company to be successful long term. Yeah. So the funny thing is, I think a lot of times in in business, right, when you're in a good situation and you have a good team uh, working together, and this is true of if you're on a job site or in the office. The problems, the struggles, the disagreements, whatever you want to call it, they're not big. They're generally not, um, they're not overly impactful. Like I find no. within Berg, we don't disagree on impactful things. Where we hurt mm-hmm. each other's feelings, like if you want to be like emotional about it, where we hurt each other's feelings is on things that are relatively, they're insignificant, they're irrelevant, Mm. but we weren't aware of the other person's position or a stance they had taken to someone else. And then when it comes back, all of a sudden, we quick trigger made a decision that was really inconsequential, but accidentally hurt somebody's feelings. I mean, and that's really true of relationships. Like you go into your own, Mm -hmm. you know, your own personal interactions outside of work with people. And that's usually how it happens. Like you don't, you know, it's not like a move that, it reminds me of um, uh, when Dave Devaney was talking and he said, like, everybody pictures the movie that, like, you know, the SEAL teams come in and it's, like, just shock and all. There's, you know what I mean? But usually we want to be in and out as quiet as we can. You know what I mean? And that's, yeah. I feel like there's some similarity there. When the company's running, when the company's run well, there's not huge blow-ups. Um, otherwise, you would struggle because now you have a directional problem. You have inconsistencies in your leadership. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to be aware of what's going on with people's uh, feelings. Another thing that came up between the three of us when we were talking yesterday, um, and it's funny because we just had this conversation, like we didn't, uh, I didn't schedule the podcast based on having the meeting nor the meeting on the podcast. It just fell that way. Um, Was I said, as we've gotten bigger and um, more confident in what we're doing, we're more used to our opinion being heated, each of us. Mm Mm-hmm. Because yeah. for some reason it matters, you know what I mean. Like I don't. I, I've said this to. I've said this to my wife. I said like I don't really know why people think they should believe that what I'm saying is accurate, but they do. I said and I'm trying to be honest, and I'm trying to deliver you my best possible judgment on what I think should happen. But that sure. doesn't mean I was the most credible person you knew. Like the most not credible, the most knowledgeable. It doesn't mean you may have actually known three more knowledgeable people, but 
you believe that I can give you an answer? And part of that's self-awareness that maybe I know more than I think I know. Um, but part of it is just the reality. You start to get to a certain role and there's an expectation outwardly coming towards you that you are a reliable source to provide an answer. And once that starts to happen, um, I feel like you end up in this position where you start to expect that people, if they ask your opinion, are going to heed your opinion. And sort mm-hmm. of, again, the Dave Divinity thing, uh, one of his things was insouciance, right? That you don't, it doesn't matter. You don't really care, in essence, to simplify. You don't care what people think. Um, it's one of the narcissism's ones, which can be problematic. But, um, yeah. but I realized a few years back that I really, that's a big thing with me. I really genuinely try and take in all the information that I think I need and then I provide my explanation of why I think we should do something. And I really don't care if it's in disagreement with other people because I took the time to make the decision. It doesn't mean we have to do what I say to your point, but it does mean that's why it's my point. There are two interesting things there. One. Yeah. I think the, the disagreement is on those smaller things. And I've always, you'll see a lot of times you're like, yeah, if you're not, you know, if you don't have people around you that are disagreeing with you, like there's big problems there. You'll hear business owners talking about how they, like they'll have, you know, there'll be a few people running the company and they're disagreeing on everything and arguing this and that's like, I don't, we don't really argue about the big stuff. Yeah. Like very rarely are there, we, we uh, you know, I, I'll see something that's, hey, we need to go in this direction. I'll talk to Dan or Andy. They're just like, yep, sounds good. And like, we were always pretty, yeah. pretty close to in alignment there. It's the little stuff that gets people wound up. Yeah. And then the funny thing too is, so in, and you operate within the world of Berg and you have very significant influence within the world of Berg and you're used to that. But what I've struggled with, I've built this business that operates very in line with how I operate as an individual. And I'm used to having this certain amount of influence. You go into the normal world and, and it's really frustrating yeah. sometimes. Because yeah. it's like when we were building the building, for example, like trying to get a building permit and you're dealing with the local government and it's all of this total horseshit that would never that would never be tolerated within the company, the world we operate in. But you just have to deal with it anyway. And you're reminded like, okay, I don't actually have all, all of this influence. I do over here, but over here, I'm completely worthless. I am no different than anybody else. <laughs> yeah, you know where I really uh, recently I actually felt that was when we came down to do the FTX thing. And, uh, yeah. and they set it up and you got all these people who are used to being in charge in a room yes. and then they just arbitrarily picked who's in charge. And I was, I, I remember my dad passed away about a year, a little over a year ago. But I remember my dad used to say he was in Vietnam and he used to say that if I was in the army, I'd be the first one dead and I'd be shot by my own people. He was like, because they just <laughs> wouldn't tolerate you because you don't listen. He said like, you don't, you just, you, somebody tells you to do something. You say, yeah, I don't think I want to do that. And yeah. uh, even one of the last conversations we had was that he said, like, you're someday it's going to bite you in the ass because you don't <laughs> listen. I tell you to do something, you do whatever you want. You think you always think, you know, what's right. And, uh-huh. uh, and at the FTX thing, that's exactly what I felt like. It was like, I'm sitting here and like, okay, here's the plan. And I'm like, well, that's a terrible plan. You know what I mean? And I'm like, I'm the person I wouldn't want to deal with on my own team, you know? Yeah. And I was, it, it was a real awakening for me that like, okay, I'm going to have to, you know, the few things I came away with that, that were of real value, that was one of them, was to say, like, okay, I got to be at least self-aware enough to realize that I tend to not listen sometimes. You know, I, I, I listen, but I don't hear you or whatever the saying is, vice versa. I, I hear what you're saying. I just don't listen. And yeah. that's somewhere that I really saw, like, along that, that permit situation, you know, is that you just, you just expect that your input is going to have a certain certain impact, you know, and, I, and I, we've had this conversation a few times quickly, directly, but more often than not with either Dan or Clay or even Ben, uh, when we talk about like Bill Wittberg and the relationship and how are we, how's everybody feel, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I, a number of times I always feel like I say like, guys, I'm not even upset. Like I get it. I mean, like at the end of the day, we all sit in these meetings and Culture is super important. Uh, how you make people feel, super important. Work-life balance, really important to me. i got three young girls. They play a lot of sports. We go to the beach. I, I really value work-life balance. But at the end of the day, if you don't make money, you don't have a business. There's no culture because there's no business. There's no work-life balance because there's no work. So step one you know, is make money. 
And, and when I saw what you were doing, I was like, this could make them a lot of money. Like, I don't know how he's going to roll it out. You know, and I would have these conversations and I said, but having said that, you have a contract to do X with us. And if we don't do X, I'm going to be mad because yeah. we expected you to do that thing. Yes, this is a great idea. I was like, so I don't not see why you're distracted. I see it. And Ford and I struggle with that all the time. We go, we always say it's like, you know, squirrel, like we go see the next shiny thing and we run because mm-hmm. that's fun. And we think it can be successful. But, uh, but I think that you only end up in that scenario when the leadership of that team is all pulling in the same direction. Because if you're already pulling in other directions, you'll have, you're never going to get to the point where you try and do that next big thing because you're just fighting amongst each other in which direction you're even going to go. And this is where I think how you guys are organized is very clever. And I've talked to Ford about it. Ford's been on the podcast and Alex will link it and, and for people to listen to that interview yeah. as well because this that'll help illustrate a lot of these points a lot more clearly. But um, you guys are have multiple divisions. Yeah. And so it's not that you just went off and, oh, okay, so we're serving all these homeowners, but landfills, mm, that looks pretty cool. So let's just run over there instead. You essentially created multiple divisions and different leadership so that you can take specific resources, have the specific leaders to go expand into landfills while you're still serving those legacy homeowner customers. And that's where that's where we're at is like we need that core business to remain strong. And that's your core business is serving Bergs and Rossos and Milburns. You've you've met all the guys at this point, serving those companies and making them as successful as possible. That's a huge part of this play. But then we also need to go build an entirely separate team to go push into this new opportunity. So I you know. And in theory, we have the leadership up top strong enough where we can go do both successfully without breaking something. And if we do do both, our business is better off because now we have more money. If we have more money, we can better serve Berg. And now we're serving Berg from multiple different angles rather than one one angle. And we're providing you with a lot of different solutions to then make you more money. And then if you make more money, then we make more money. And it just all is this virtuous cycle. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, so I think I, you guys have done the same thing. Yeah, well, you know what? Um, and I'm, as, as I said, we sort of started here. I am very direct and, you know, very little filter on purpose. Cause I think it's, I think it breeds a healthy conversation and I yep. think it makes it very difficult to end up in like, well, Dan said this because I'm going to say what I'm going to say and leave very little room for you to interpret it. Cause I'm going to say it. Um, we didn't end up at the division idea because we were smart. Like in most of what we did, it wasn't because we were smarter than you were. Um, most of the time, it's because we just refuse to lose. Like I often say, I will win at almost everything I do, but it's not because I actually beat you. It's because of what, how low I'll go and still consider it winning. And you'll just give up and be like, this isn't mm-hmm. even winning at this point. This is, I'm just not yeah. going to do this. And I'd be like, okay, so then you're done. And then once you're done, I'm like, okay, well, then I won. And I didn't uh-huh. win anything. So the, the reason I say that is I'm trying to be uh, honest about my personality and how I act and how interactions occur, but also give you sort of a, a vignette, sort of a picture. We made a mistake with our initial division. So when we came out of special projects and started to grow the company, I still ran everything. And I would not react to a homeowner who needed a, $5,000 little swale job done, the same as somebody who needed a $250,000 site package, you know, a small mm-hmm. site. Uh, and then once we picked up the first big landfill, you know, not the landfill so much as the, uh, the, the treatment plant. And that was like, I don't know, $900,000, a big contract for us at that time. And so now I paid almost no attention to special projects. And we realized we almost lost some of our original clients. So we had to say like, okay, I can't, do both. So what do we do? So we're like, okay, well, what if we bring somebody in and we have them do this? And when we did it, we were more successful with the special projects because that was already what we did. It was sort of in place than we were with the big division. And so we're like, okay, this is actually a reasonable model. Now at that point, it became that we were smart enough or aware enough to see that it would work. And so we said, okay, well, every time we started, we just said, okay, so obviously we need a new division to do this. You know, but so many times in business, in life, 
you, you don't end up where you were on a map. And I mean, like, heavy civil plans are a great example of that, really. Like, if you make it its most base, like, you can, you know, you, you know an engineer. You can, you can draw the prints and give them to me two-dimensionally, and that's, that's great. That's like a sort of a roadmap for what it, – it tells me what you want me to end up at, and it tells me what you yep. have. And you have some pretty pictures and lines and grades that tell me, like, roughly what you want. But between you drawing that and what's there and us actually getting to the end is not a straight line. It has mm-hmm. terms that we don't even know are going to exist yet. You know, in the closer it stays to that line, the happier everybody is, obviously. Um, but, and that's true of life and it's true of business. Like you don't, you don't end up where you are by a plan at most points. You end up by, you know, what happens and how you react to it. Well, and then the best engineers and best contractors are the ones that understand that the plan is going to change and they work together to accommodate those changes to create that final goal. Like you'll see those engineers and contractors the same way. You'll see the engineers that are like, no, this is the plan. And when the contractor's saying, no, your plan is wrong, they take it personally and it's attack on them and their work. It's like, no, I worked really hard on this. You know, I spent three months on these goddamn drawings. They're right. And instead, the, the great engineers, they put their ego aside and they say, I totally see your point and we need to make some adjustments accordingly. And then the contractors, you know, from the contractor's point of view, they're always swearing at the engineers. Like these guys don't know shit. Well, they, they do know something. And if, they, if you didn't have the engineers, you wouldn't know what to build and, and you wouldn't have a job. So it's like, what, what good does uh, swearing at each other do? Yeah. You, have to, you have to just, uh, it's, hey, plan's going to change. That's fine. It's nobody's fault here. Let's meet in the middle to figure out how we accomplish this common goal that we have, which is building a successful project. That's all we're trying to do here. Yeah, and I, you know, it's funny. Um, a stubborn engineer is a change order just waiting to happen. Like, mm-hmm. uh, and a stubborn, you know, construction company is one just waiting to to pay some liquidated damage to somebody. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, you have to be really <laughs> flexible. Uh, I mean, some of our most successful um, off the path. So, so something we didn't anticipate money came from a problem that we pointed out or someone pointed out. It doesn't have to be us. I mean, we work with a, especially when we play in landfills, we play with a lot of really good contractors. I mean, a lot of, you know, it's not an advertisement, but Kinsley does a really nice job. You know what I mean? They're they're a strong company. Um, And, and I'll say it, Justin, you know, Justin, uh, Justin goes into a pre-bid and he's going to ask every relevant question. Partly because he wants the answer, partly because he's trying to make sure everybody else who isn't as smart as him and didn't have as much time to go over the plans realizes there's some issues. But when the when the engineer just says, "Well, no, that's that's not a problem. We'll just address it in the field." It's like you just you sort of like make a note notebook. So, all right, deal with it in the field. You know, because yeah. it's expensive to deal with it in the field. Uh, and likewise, when the when the contractor takes that same path and was like, "Well, that's not what you drew," and you get into it, like you don't want to you don't want to dig your heels in against engineers and owners. It's, you're not going to make any friends. And in most of the work that that the big you know that the midsize the big companies do, there's there's some serious penalties if you miss deadlines. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of money to be lost. Well, but it's a shame because that's that happens a lot. Yeah. And there's, I mean, that's why there's so much litigation. In the construction, in theory, in theory, there really should not be litigation in in the world of construction. I mean, most litigation is completely unnecessary. But that's just that's just them digging in. It's an ego play. I want to prove I'm right. Screw this guy. We're we're going to court. Yeah, yeah. And and, I mean, the only people that win is is the lawyers. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, I always say, you know. attorneys are the only profession that if you didn't have them, you wouldn't need them. The only reason I have an attorney is because you have an attorney. If you didn't have an attorney, I wouldn't bring one either. You know, you could just talk it out, but if you're going to bring your attorney, I got to bring my attorney. Yeah. Uh, so, but I mean, one of the most successful relationships we have uh, is there's a couple good engineering firms who really trust a survey company locally. Mm. And, that's where we see the best relationship, quite honestly, because the surveyor is a great, a great intermediary between 
the construction side and the engineer because he has to take it's changed a little bit lately because of GPS, right? We all have so much GPS that the surveyor doesn't play as important a role in the construction of the process. Now we sort of own that 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 function, but also the the exposure, the liability of it. But yeah. in the environments where we have those, they understand what you're doing and they understand what they're trying to accomplish. And so they can act as like the peacemaker between the two and say, like, okay. You, I can see how they're right and I can see how they're right. And they can sort of be a, mm-hmm. an intermediary. We've had really good luck uh, to the point where I like to use the same surveyor over and over again on a lot of the big projects uh, just because of that, because I believe that they can express our concerns to the engineer and I will listen to them about the engineer's concerns. And that's, that's interesting. I haven't heard that before. Uh, and, and I guess a contractor and an engineer, both parties, they're only as good as the surveyor is as yeah. well. Like if the surveyor is completely off, you could go build a perfect whatever you're building. But if it's off by two feet, it, the whole thing's wrong. Like it doesn't matter yeah. how how good the tolerances are on the project overall. If it's off, it's yeah, off. It's awesome. And the um, uh, it's just, I, I guess that's interesting too, because both sides can oftentimes be right. The contractor can be right and the engineer can be right. Or the, 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 project owner could be right. I mean, both sides, like there's not always one right answer in construction because there are so many variables, so many different things to consider that it's it's oftentimes uh, something, it, it's a conversation that needs to happen. You have to meet in the middle and, and not just dig your heels in on your point because the other side can have some great value to add as well. Yeah. We find, uh, you know, Scott Gardner does a great job of this with special projects is he finds solutions always like he is taking the owner of the solution. Now the solution might be expensive or the solution might be inexpensive, you know, and in his best work, Scott gives you two options. One is an inexpensive option that fixes the problem. And the other is an expensive option that likely is a better fix. And then Mm -hmm. he gives the owner, the homeowner, the GC, whoever it is, the choice and says, Hey, these are two options. I'm, we're going to, Berg is going to be successful and make money no matter what you pick. But these are your two options is you could do it this way or you could do it this way. Neither is wrong, neither is right. Both are going to have their benefits and their drawbacks, but that's the solution. You know, uh, we see that a lot in our commercial division uh, with geostorage. We've done a lot with geostorage and it, it doesn't make it the right solution, but in the right environment, geostorage is the right answer. And in every answer, in, in most situations, it can be in the conversation to at least say this is an option, or you can go with your standards, you know, your standard plastic or concrete systems. It's up yeah. to you. But here's the benefits of the two. And when you can do that and provide a solution to the client, that's where we really see that we're able to build relationships because they see it's not, you know, it's the funniest thing you contradict yourself. It's not just about the money. It is about the money, but it's not just about the money. You know, it's in a perfect world if the owner can get what they want at a fair price and get the use out of their facility and feel good about the process of getting there. That's a happy owner. And a happy owner pays on time. We pay on time. We make money. And if we did what we were supposed to do, we made money. So we make money. You have your facility and everybody's happy. That's, you know, like a win, win, win. I mean, everybody wins yeah. and that's, that's yeah. what you want. I, last thing we want to do is be arguing with people or or be in a position where we're trying to defend why we did what we did. What's the, so a lot of contractors, they start out with smaller work. Residential is a great example, digging basements, doing tie-ins, that kind of thing. Um, and which is, you guys started there and then you've transitioned to commercial and you do public works, you do landfills, you guys do a lot of different work. Why keep the special projects division? Why maintain that smaller, smaller work? Because most contractors say, Hey, I used to do it. It worked out great, but now we're a landfill contractor. I don't need to be digging small ponds in people's backyards for drainage anymore. We're going to go over here and do the, the million dollar jobs. What's the point in keeping it? Well, so uh, quite honestly, it, we view it almost like an apprenticeship. Like really, I mean, and that's, I don't want to knock JD. JD's one of our best guys. JD's a superintendent of mm-hmm. special projects. He's amazing operator. Anytime we do something at my house and I pay for Berg to do something, JD's 90% of the time, JD did it. Um, but 
you can you have a very small environment and you need the person to be able to do most of the things that you do. Now you don't have to grade a three thousand square foot a three hundred thousand square foot pad, but you might have to grade a three thousand square foot pad. You don't have to dig a huge basin with all of the structures that would be in place for you know a half a million square foot pad site, but you got to dig a basin and you got to get the outlet structure and you're going to need a spillway. Um, you don't have the same utility, so it's a smaller scale. So we see it as a place where we can train people and get them the experience and they understand what it is we do. Because if it's, if it's a, you know, 1500 square foot patio in a little basin that you're just padding off and getting the water away from the house, is it different to build a 300,000 square foot pad? Yeah. But I mean, in essence, you're grading something flat, you're manipulating the earth in a way that you've now created a a usable site and you're dealing with the conditions that it is, they exist. And then if you just pick that 300,000 square foot pad up and you put it at a three to one slope, well, that's a landfill. You know what I mean? Like we're doing the same thing. It's just to different scales and different conditions in different um, regulations that we have to meet. So we like special projects because A, it's where we came from. B, it allows us to serve the local community. So we can do things that benefit the local community and provide a service to the people that we live with. Um, but C, it allows us to have a place where we can train our guys in, in our environment, in the open shop market where we're just, you know, we're living out in Chester, Lancaster, you know, Bucks County or Burks County, Montgomery County. And we're just, it gives us a way that we can teach the younger guys, this is what we do. This is why we do it. And now let's, do you want to keep doing that? Or is your interest in doing something bigger? And then we'll go to the next big thing and maybe you can do that. And it's a great, it's a great training mechanism for us. That's pretty, uh, that's, it's, it's pretty slick. I, I, a lot of contractors, they just get, they get caught up in bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the funny thing is they start making less and less and less money yeah. as they get bigger and bigger. That's just a reality of, and you start playing against, you know, if you're bidding against H and K. They're going to kick the shit out of you most of the time. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be snug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 If you're, if you're beating them, yeah, you're sweating a little bit. Um, but the, the whole making the community better thing, I think is a really remarkable thing about the industry construction. And sure, you have a big impact on the community when you're putting in big water lines and doing highway projects, so on and so forth. But the, the level of impact you have from an intimacy standpoint in building a pad for a a single family home or doing a tie-in for that home or digging that basement basin so that that home is good in that 25 50 year event so they're they're high and dry that's it's really cool and and probably a lot of that residential work is probably more gratifying a lot of times than like a big highway project because you're actually meeting the people that are going to be in the home. You're seeing the impact of your work in a very, very tangible manner rather than like, yeah, 100,000 cars a day drive on this road. That doesn't mean as much as a family moving into a home. Yeah, so... At least I think. No, no, I definitely agree with you. I want to hit on the first thing you said. We have never stopped being just as profitable as we were in special projects. The other things we mm-hmm. do, I mean, if, if you talk to Brian, Brian would often ask me why it is I run, you know, one or two of our divisions. Because he said, you could just run a couple of the other ones and you'd be, you might make half the money, but you'd take home the same amount of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that plays to the same thing. We believe we can have a bigger impact in our community doing these things and we can spread the wealth within our company to more people if we do more services. But it, it doesn't necessarily mean that those services are nearly as profitable as some of the others. Some of our, some of our divisions are by design going to be more profitable and others, the margins are much tighter because of who you're bidding against and what you're doing. But the other point when you said about the house is that is maybe the strongest example for me is about, I think it's been about two years now and we had like a a tornado blow through Morgantown, which isn't real common where we are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it it messed up a couple houses. It went through a, like a a townhome community uh, and one of the, a couple of local people, like, I mean, they were, they had just trees everywhere. And so JD who's you know, like I said, I mean, it's not only is JD a great guy, even if he doesn't smile for pictures, but JD's a really good operator and his heart's always in the right place. And so JD went out and he was helping some people. And one of them was his aunt. And 
his aunt couldn't be happier. I didn't, I mean, the machine there was a small machine and it was just really guys getting out with, with, you know, going back to our roots with Berg brothers, you know what I mean? Just doing clearing. We were just cutting down trees and they moving them out of the way, just making it so she could get to her house again and get out, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think as you grow a lot of times, you can lose touch and start to just see big dollars and big quantities of dirt, big machines, you know? And I mean, a 490 and a D8, that's great. You know, and they're fun to take pictures of and you stand next to it, you park your truck next to it. And it's like, you know, I pull into a site with a 490 and it's just this monstrous machine that looks tiny because of the scope mm-hmm. of the work we're doing. Yeah. But like you said, in terms of impact, you know, a little worm 38, you know what I mean? Digging somebody's basement and putting their water line in, that family moved in. Like they're going to, I have the pictures from me growing up when we bought the house I grew up in. My parents bought our house of me standing next to the guy that ran the wheel loader in the backhoe. You know what I mean? Yeah. It reminds me when I see your pictures of your birthday party thing, like we would go visit that house every day and I would see like, you know, a bulldozer and a wheel loader and an excavator and a backhoe. Um, and those were the people that built the house. You know what I mean? Like, so they, everything that I knew in my life happened, you know, growing, living in a house that was built by a person, you know what I mean? Or many people. It was built by people and civil guys and framers and roofers and plumbers and electricians. You know what I mean? And, but it's not the same as when you go to a big highway job or even a big, you know, a big, a big pad where a lot of people are going to work. You know, when we're building a lot of, everybody's building warehouses and, you know, distribution centers now. Um, but it's not the same as when the feeling you get, when, I mean, you're delivering people their, their home. I agree. And a lot of people are always like, oh, it's, it's a small job. You're not really going to care about it. You like the big stuff. It's like, yeah, I do like the big stuff. A big shovel loading overburden in North Dakota is badass. Let me tell you, like two passing 200 ton truck. You're just like, this is crazy. But also going out and seeing your special projects guys with a skid steer in someone's backyard. I think that's really badass too. And honestly, I enjoy some of that stuff more than I do the big stuff because it's just, it's just, it's a lot more intimate. And especially in like a tornado situation, people appreciate it so much because everybody's so comfortable. As soon as that level of comfort is completely taken from you, you realize how vulnerable you really are as a human being. It's like, shit, if I can't get to my house or my house doesn't have power or my house is damaged, I'm not worth a whole lot as a human being. I can't do like everything else in my life is on hold until I can figure out how to clear my damn driveway to get to my house. And it's, it's something so simple, but that becomes by far the most impactful thing in that person's life in a, a situation like that. And if you're the person coming to save the day, that's, that's pretty special. Yeah. It's pretty damn cool. And I think contractors, they not only lose sight of the community impact, but they just start growing bigger and bigger and bigger and start chasing revenue, not profitability. Yeah. And they're always like your point to why don't, why do you just, why don't you just run these two divisions and sure we're going to make half the revenue, but we're going to make just as much money. It's like all these contracts, they just go after, they just focus revenue, 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 revenue. And they back themselves into a corner by making only a few percent a year. And then they say, well, we can't invest in our people and we can't buy new equipment or we can't do this. We can't do that. We don't make enough money. It's like, well, you've designed the business. You've, you've designed it not to make very much money. So that's your fault. Yeah, you know what, um, and this you're giving me probably like the biggest platform I'm going to have to say it, but it sort of triggered this thought in me as you were going through that that line of reasoning is I always, in our conference room, we have the picture, uh, which is mildly staged and was against your wishes when I did it, but where I had all the equipment sitting there at the beginning or end of the day, whatever it was. And I said, I just wanted that picture on top of that landfill. Uh, and it's not your normal thing, right? Like you, you like action, which we love those pictures, but I just wanted for my own sake to have a picture of this equipment from this job. So I'd remember where we were. It was like a place in time. Um, yep. And we have that picture and there's all this big equipment there and it's great and it's amazing. But what I really take from it now is I say to people, there are a limited number of people who have that much equipment. Not everybody has that equipment. And even in a place like the Northeast, like Southeast Pennsylvania, where there are just, you can fall out of bed and just hit, huge contractors like they're just we're just very close to each other because of how tightly packed this area is and the level of development and what they did and what they grew into 
But even having said that, there's always enough work. Like there are limited people with the equipment. There are limited people who can complete the work, who physically laborers, operators, pipe layers. It's a limited number of people. And yet for some reason, we all fight with each other. And we're like, well, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm going to zero on this one because I want that job. And it was like, well, okay, but no business runs at zero. And the only reason if if you go to zero, then the next one I'm gonna have to go to zero, and the next one someone else goes to zero, and then pretty soon we all went for zero. And we're like, hey, why didn't we make any money? And said, so, well, because mm-hmm. you all went to zero, you know. But it's hard to be the one sitting there. We actually did it this year in paving. Paving has been a struggle for us this year because with COVID, I mean, you you talk about when you say about things you didn't think would happen. You know, as I like stream of consciousness, I was at Con Expo. You were there too. Very confident, but supremely confident that the United States could not be shut down. It was, I told my wife, it was a ridiculous fear. Ford and I would be back in a few days. The world's not going to end. Don't worry about it. And yeah. two days later, we rented a truck and stashed it under the Venetian in case we had to drive home. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was became very quick, very quickly, it became clear that a lot of things we didn't think could happen could happen. But through that whole process, the crazy thing was people continued to drive the prices down. And it was mm-hmm. like, there's this COVID will make less of us. Like there will be less people doing this. There are people that are going to get out that at the end of the life cycle of their own participation in the company that want to sell. There are people that are just going to shut their companies down. There's people that have gone bankrupt and there are people that are bankrupt and don't realize it yet. Um, but all of those people are going to reduce the number of people that can do this work. Mm-hmm. And if you can maintain what you are, be honest about the culture and the company you want to live in and you want to provide for the people that are with you and hold your lines, we're all going to come out of it better. But to the paving point, once people stopped traveling in Pennsylvania, the toll dollars fell apart. Once the toll dollars fell apart, the PennDOT money fell apart. Once the PennDOT mm-hmm. money fell apart, there was no more state work. Once there was no state work, H&K, Myers, all the big boys, Highway, you know what I mean? Tony DePaul, all of them, more, they needed their plants to run. Mm-hmm. And the way they could guarantee their plants running was if they had the work. So all of a sudden, you know, Alan Myers has been a $100,000 road widening. It doesn't make any sense. There's no way they're going to make money on that. But it didn't yeah. matter. They needed to have the material. And internally, we had discussions, and it was like playing chicken to an end that we weren't even clear what it was. But I said, we're just not going to do this. Like, I'm not going to lose money to do paving. Like, I'd rather we'll have the paving guys do something else. You know, we'll go after other work and try and make it through, muddle through as best we can. But we can't knowingly lose money. Like, we can't go into it to lose money. Like, it's pointless. What are you going to do? You know, and so that was a real struggle in 2021 for us was to sit there and watch these jobs that normally we would be competitive and we weren't, we were 30% off. I mean, now, so was everybody else, but mm-hmm. that doesn't, you know, you can't pay the bills with that. So yeah. that's where we really see the benefit too in being diverse, have multiple divisions, because there's other divisions that weren't impacted by, it. you know, meanwhile, the housing market exploded. So special projects was just, I mean, they were, they're still turning down work because we just, even if I divert some of my other crews, we can't do enough work to build enough houses for how many people want houses. Well, in the what happens when everybody's racing to the bottom is they lose, their people lose, the project owners, they lose because they're getting shittier work. It, it, it's If everybody's doing well and being really profitable as, as a, a industry, if the industry's profitable, everybody is better off. We're going to be creating better projects for anybody who's buying them, whether it be government, private, whatever it may be. We're going to be caring for our people a lot better, investing in our people. We're going to be supporting all of our subcontractors, suppliers a hell of a lot more effectively. Everybody wins if contractors are winning. Good contractors are winning. Not There's some bad contractors out there that, that need to go away. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just the race to the bottom. It, it screws everybody. Yeah, we... Um, over the past year, we've really seen a lot of interesting things happen in terms of supply chain, labor costs, uh, material costs. But one really interesting thing that we've seen happen lately is we've heard from a couple companies that we know of, not necessarily in our market, 
in our in our market, but not in our geographical market, mm-hmm. who have gone out and all of us have raised our our labor uh, costs, right? Like it's gotten more expensive to have employees. Yeah. Um, not just soft costs in terms of shutdowns are expensive, you know, quarantining when you're paying people is expensive, but actually per hour wage rates have come up yeah. uh, because the labor force is in the driver's seat right now. And insurance. And, right. So all those costs yeah. have gone up, but we've heard of a few companies here who have just gone out and reevaluated and said, okay, we're going to give everybody a significant raise hourly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, their profit margin stayed the same. Like, so that is a, a little bit of a scary thought as the one who would be sort of trying to explain how I could give away 5%, but somehow still have 5%. Like that, that becomes a scary thought. Uh, but we're starting to hear people talk about it in safe environments that they've done it and it didn't hurt them. And they feel like they're getting better qualified people in the door. Uh, and so I think that that's a conversation that the better, like I hate that word, but the that the more progressive companies are going to look at in the next, you know, over the next hiring season as you get into winter and things start to shut down in our market and only certain jobs run and certain uh, things stay open. I think as you come into 2022, you're going to see that Berg itself may readjust our pay scale to some degree and then hire accordingly in an attempt to bring in more qualified quality people who fit our culture. Because if I can bring in more qualified quality people who fit our culture, I can likely do this work more efficiently. The way that we designed it to be done, you know, four years ago, three years ago, before COVID, before all of these impacts changed how we did work. And if we can get Mm -hmm. back to that point, can we be just as profitable? And if we can, I would always, uh, I would always like our people to be able to afford more when and I don't do as much of the hiring directly anymore, but it still is in place that when we interview someone, the question we ask you is how much do you need to live your lifestyle? Mm-hmm. And if the amount you need exceeds your experience, then you're not going to work at Berg because I can't pay you that number, you know, uh, but if it doesn't and we can reach an agreement, then then we want you to join our team. You know, we've had instances where I said that when I was still doing all of the hiring. The one I remember is a loader operator. The guy wanted 28. Like, let's just numbers. This is me. Numbers are what they are. He wanted 28. And that's a high number in our market for a loader operator. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, I mean, we need a loader operator. And it's definitely a role I need to fill. And I understand that's your lifestyle. But I, I could pay that number. But if I'm going to pay that number, then I'm going to get $28 loader operator. And if you come mm-hmm. out and you're a $25 loader operator, which is still a very good loader operator, you're probably not going to work here very long because I'm not going to reduce your pay. So you either can or cannot operate at $28 per hour, and you know what that is. And the guy said, I'd like to join the team. I can take 25 You know, because he knew that he couldn't – now, now – he can now perform that way mm-hmm. and is compensated as such, you know, but it just takes self-awareness, you know, and honesty and transparency for us to just say, this is, this is where you are, you know, and that's hard yeah. in this environment, in this labor market. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I was, I was going to say it takes, it takes self-awareness from the individual's perspective, but it takes discipline from the company's perspective, especially now more than ever is everybody's just desperate for people. They're, eroding their existing standards, they're going to get screwed long-term as a result. And you have to have the discipline to say, mm, it's, it, it, this is how we operate. Yeah. So it's either you're here or you're not, and you're going to be much better off for it long-term. Yeah, no, I, um, we've covered a lot of ground here. Dan. Yeah. yeah. Are we going to start Evan? now? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I didn't get yeah, the intro now, music and everything, so I didn't know we were starting. Now to the now to the podcast. Yeah. No, there's uh we have editing for whatever <laughs> we need to get rid of, but um yeah, we've tried to eliminate the intros and all that just because it's we just we just want yeah, to like it's just the exact same thing. Like we would have had this same conversation if there were no microphones and we were sharing a beer, yeah. honestly. Like this is the stuff we just yeah. talk about. 
Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. No, I, I've uh, I've very much enjoyed it. And you're, it's obviously Bird Construction. People can find you. What's the website? Birdcox.com is the website. So B-E-R-G-C-O-N-S-T. You got it. You're construction. You got it. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, um, Dan, we appreciate you stopping by. No, no, I appreciate you having me. Thanks for sitting down to talk.